Chapter eighteen of the Riddle of the Universe by Ernst Haeckel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Riddle of the Universe by Ernst Haeckel. Translated by Joseph McCabe. Chapter eighteen Our Monistic Religion contents of this chapter include monism as a connecting link between religion and science the kultur kampf the relations of church and state principles of the monistic religion its threefold ideal the good the true and the beautiful contradiction between scientific and christian truth harmony of the monistic and the christian idea of virtue opposition between monistic and christian views of art modern expansion and enrichment of our idea of the world landscape painting and the modern enjoyment of nature the beauties of nature this world and beyond monistic churches many distinguished scientists and philosophers of the day who share our monistic views consider that religion is generally played out their meaning is that the clear insight into the evolution of the world which the great scientific progress of the nineteenth century has afforded us will satisfy not only the causal feelings of our reason but even our highest emotional cravings this view is correct in the sense that the two ideas religion and science would indeed blend into one if we had a perfectly clear and consecutive system of monism however there are but a few resolute thinkers who attain to this most pure and lofty conception of spinoza and goethe most of the educated people of our time as distinct from the uncultured masses remain in the conviction that religion is a separate branch of our mental life independent of science and not less valuable and indispensable if we adopt this view we can find a means of reconciling the two great and apparently quite distinct branches in the idea i put forward in monism as a connecting link between religion and science in eighteen ninety two in the preface to this confession of faith of a man of science i expressed myself in the following terms with regard to its double object Quote, in the first place i must give expression to the rational system which is logically forced upon us by the recent progress of science it dwells in the intimate thoughts of nearly every impartial and thoughtful scientist though few have the courage or the disposition to avow it in the second place i would make of it a connecting link between religion and science and thus do away with the antithesis which has been needlessly maintained between these two branches of the highest activity of the human mind the ethical craving of our emotion is satisfied by monism no less than the logical demand for causality on the part of reason the remarkable interest which the discourse enkindled is a proof that in this monistic profession of faith i expressed the feeling not only of many scientists but of a large number of cultured men and women of very different circles not only was i rewarded by hundreds of sympathetic letters but by a wide circulation of the printed address of which six editions were required within six months i had the more reason to be content with this unexpected success as this confession of faith was originally merely an occasional speech which i delivered unprepared on october ninth eighteen ninety two at altenburg during the jubilee of the scientific society of east germany 
naturally there was the usual demonstration on the other side i was fiercely attacked not only by the ultramontane press the sworn defenders of superstition but also by the liberal controversialists of evangelical christianity who profess to defend both scientific truth and purified faith in the seven years that have ensued since that time the great struggle between modern science and orthodox christianity has become more threatening it has grown more dangerous for science in proportion as christianity has found support in an increasing mental and political reaction in some countries the church has made such progress that the freedom of thought and conscience which is guaranteed by the laws is in practice gravely menaced for instance in bavaria the great historic struggle which draper has so admirably depicted in his conflict between religion and science is to-day more acute and significant than ever for the last twenty-seven years it has been rightly called the kulturkampf the famous encyclica and syllabus which the militant pope pius the ninth sent out into the entire world in eighteen sixty four were a declaration of war on the whole of modern science they demanded the blind submission of reason to the dogmas of the infallible pope the enormity of this crude assault on the highest treasures of civilization even roused many indolent minds from the slumber of belief together with the subsequent promulgation of the papal infallibility in eighteen seventy the encyclica provoked a deep wave of irritation and an energetic repulse which held out high hopes in the new german empire which had attained its indispensable national unity by the heavy sacrifices of the wars of eighteen sixty six and eighteen seventy one the insolent attacks of the pope were felt to be particularly offensive on the one hand germany is the cradle of the reformation and the modern emancipation of reason on the other hand it unfortunately has in its eighteen million catholics a vast host of militant believers who are unsurpassed by any other civilized people in blind obedience to their chief shepherd the dangers of such a situation were clearly recognized by the great statesmen who had solved the political world riddle of the dismemberment of germany and had led us by a marvellous statecraft to the long-desired goal of national unity and power prince bismarck began the famous struggle with the vatican which is known as the kulturkampf in eighteen seventy two and it was conducted with equal ability and energy by the distinguished minister of worship falk author of the may laws of eighteen seventy three unfortunately bismarck had to desist six years afterwards although the great statesman was a remarkable judge of men and a realistic politician of immense tact he had underestimated the force of three powerful obstacles firstly the unsurpassed cunning and unscrupulous treachery of the roman curia secondly the correlative ingratitude and credulity of the uneducated catholic masses on which the papacy built and thirdly the power of apathy the continuance of the irrational simply because it is in possession hence in eighteen seventy eight when the abler leo the thirteenth had ascended the pontifical throne the fatal to canossa was heard once more from that time the newly established power of rome grew in strength 
partly through the unscrupulous intrigues and serpentine bends of its slippery jesuitical politics partly through the false church politics of the german government and the marvellous political incompetence of the german people we have therefore at the close of the nineteenth century to endure the pitiful spectacle of the catholic centre being the most important section of the reichstag and the fate of our humiliated country depending on a papal party which does not constitute numerically a third part of the nation when the kulturkampf began in eighteen seventy two it was justly acclaimed by all independent thinkers as a political renewal of the reformation a vigorous attempt to free modern civilization from the yoke of papal despotism the whole of the liberal press hailed bismarck as a political luther as the great hero not only of the national unity but also of the rational emancipation of germany ten years afterwards when the papacy had proved victorious the same liberal press changed its colors and denounced the kulturkampf as a great mistake and it does the same thing to-day the facts show how short is the memory of our journalists how defective their knowledge of history and how poor their philosophic education the so-called peace between church and state is never more than a suspension of hostilities the modern papacy true to the despotic principles it has followed for the last sixteen hundred years is determined to wield sole dominion over the credulous souls of men it must demand the absolute submission of the cultured state which as such defends the rights of reason and science true and enduring peace there cannot be until one of the combatants lies powerless on the ground either the church wins and then farewell to all free science and free teaching then are our universities no better than gaols and our colleges become cloistral schools or else the modern rational state proves victorious then in the twentieth century human culture freedom and prosperity will continue their progressive development until they far surpass even the height of the nineteenth century in order to compass these high aims it is of the first importance that modern science not only shatter the false structures of superstition and sweep their ruins from the path but that it also erect a new abode for human emotion on the ground it has cleared a palace of reason in which under the influence of our new monistic views we do reverence to the real trinity of the nineteenth century the trinity of the true the good and the beautiful in order to give a tangible shape to the cult of this divine ideal we must first of all compare our position with the dominant forms of christianity and realize the changes that are involved in the substitution of the one for the other for in spite of its errors and defects the christian religion in its primitive and purer form has so high an ethical value and has entered so deeply into the more important social and political movements of civilized history for the last fifteen hundred years that we must appeal as much as possible to its existing institutions in the establishment of our monistic religion we do not seek a mighty revolution but a rational reformation of our religious life 
and just as two thousand years ago the classic poetry of the ancient greeks incarnated their ideals of virtue in divine shapes so may we too lend the character of noble goddesses to our three rational ideals we must inquire into the features of the three goddesses of the monist truth beauty and virtue and we must study their relation to the three corresponding ideals of christianity which they are to replace one the preceding inquiries especially those of the first and third sections have convinced us that truth unadulterated is only to be found in the temple of the study of nature and that the only available paths to it are critical observation and reflection the empirical investigation of facts and the rational study of their efficient causes in this way we arrive by means of pure reason at true science the highest treasure of civilized man we must in accordance with the arguments of our sixteenth chapter reject what is called revelation the poetry of faith that affirms the discovery of truth in a supernatural fashion without the assistance of reason and since the entire structure of the judeo-christian religion like that of the mohammedan and the buddhistic rests on these so-called revelations and these mystic fruits of the imagination directly contradict the clear results of empirical research it is obvious that we shall only attain to a knowledge of the truth by the rational activity of genuine science not by the poetic imagining of a mystic faith in this respect it is quite certain that the christian system must give way to the monistic the goddess of truth dwells in the temple of nature in the green woods on the blue sea and on the snowy summits of the hills not in the gloom of the cloister nor in the narrow prisons of our gaol-like schools nor in the clouds of incense of the christian churches the paths which lead to the noble divinity of truth and knowledge are the loving study of nature and its laws the observation of the infinitely great star world with the aid of the telescope and the infinitely tiny cell world with the aid of the microscope not senseless ceremonies and unthinking prayers not alms and peter's pence the rich gifts which the goddess of truth bestows on us are the noble fruits of the tree of knowledge and the inestimable treasure of a clear unified view of the world not belief in supernatural miracles and the illusion of an eternal life two it is otherwise with the divine ideal of eternal goodness in our search for the truth we have entirely to exclude the revelation of the churches and devote ourselves solely to the study of nature but on the other hand the idea of the good which we call virtue in our monistic religion coincides for the most part with the christian idea of virtue we are speaking naturally of the primitive and pure christianity of the first three centuries as far as we learn its moral teaching from the gospels and the epistles of paul it does not apply to the vatican caricature of that pure doctrine which has dominated european civilization to its infinite prejudice for twelve hundred years the best part of christian morality to which we firmly adhere is represented by the humanist precepts of charity and toleration compassion and assistance 
however these noble commands which are set down as christian morality in its best sense are by no means original discoveries of christianity they were derived from earlier religions the golden rule which sums up these precepts in one sentence is centuries older than christianity in the conduct of life this law of natural morality has been followed just as frequently by non-christians and atheists as it has been neglected by pious believers moreover christian ethics was marred by the great defect of a narrow insistence on altruism and a denunciation of egoism our monistic ethics lays equal emphasis on the two and finds perfect virtue in the just balance of love of self and love of one's neighbor three but monism enters into its strongest opposition to christianity on the question of beauty primitive christianity preached the worthlessness of earthly life regarding it merely as a preparation for an eternal life beyond hence it immediately followed that all we find in the life of a man here below all that is beautiful in art and science in public and in private life is of no real value the true christian must avert his eyes from them he must think only of a worthy preparation for the life beyond contempt of nature aversion from all its inexhaustible charms rejection of every kind of fine art are christian duties and they are carried out to perfection when a man separates himself from his fellows chastises his body and spends all his time in prayers in the cloister or the hermit's cell history teaches us that this ascetical morality that would scorn the whole of nature had as a natural consequence the very opposite effect to that it intended monasteries the homes of chastity and discipline soon became dens of the wildest orgies the sexual commerce of monks and nuns has inspired shoals of novels as it is so faithfully depicted in the literature of the renaissance the cult of the beautiful which was then practised was in flagrant contradiction with the vaunted abandonment of the world and the same must be said of the pomp and luxury which soon developed in the immoral private lives of the higher ecclesiastics and in the artistic decoration of christian churches and monasteries it may be objected that our view is refuted by the splendor of christian art which especially in the best days of the middle ages created works of undying beauty the graceful gothic cathedrals and byzantine basilicas the hundreds of magnificent chapels the thousands of marble statues of saints and martyrs the millions of fine pictures of saints of profoundly conceived representations of christ and the madonna all are proofs of the development of a noble art in the middle ages which is unique of its kind all these splendid monuments of medieval art are untouched in their high aesthetic value whatever we say of their mixture of truth and fantasy yes but what has all that to do with the pure teaching of christianity with that religion of sacrifice that turned scornfully away from all earthly parade and glamour from all material beauty and art that made light of the life of the family and the love of woman that urged an exclusive concern as to the immaterial goods of eternal life the idea of a christian art is a contradiction in terms a contradictio in adjecto 
the wealthy princes of the church who fostered it were candidly aiming at very different ideals and they completely attained them in directing the whole interest and activity of the human mind in the middle ages to the christian church and its distinctive art they were diverting it from nature and from the knowledge of the treasures that were hidden in it and would have conducted to independent science moreover the daily sight of the huge images of the saints and of the scenes of sacred history continually reminded the faithful of the vast collection of myths that the church had made the legends themselves were taught and believed to be true narratives and the stories of miracles to be records of actual events it cannot be doubted that in this respect christian art has exercised an immense influence on general culture and especially in the strengthening of christian belief an influence which still endures throughout the entire civilized world the diametrical opposite of this dominant christian art is the new artistic tendency which has been developed during the present century in connection with science the remarkable expansion of our knowledge of nature and the discovery of countless beautiful forms of life which it includes have awakened quite a new aesthetic sense in our generation and thus given a new tone to painting and sculpture numerous scientific voyages and expeditions for the exploration of unknown lands and seas partly in earlier centuries but more especially in the nineteenth have brought to light an undreamed abundance of new organic forms the number of new species of animals and plants soon became enormous and among them especially among the lower groups that had been neglected before there were thousands of forms of great beauty and interest affording an entirely new inspiration for painting sculpture architecture and technical art in this respect a new world was revealed by the great advance of microscopic research in the second half of the century and especially by the discovery of the marvellous inhabitants of the deep sea which were first brought to light by the famous expedition of the challenger eighteen seventy two to eighteen seventy six thousands of graceful radiolaria and thalamophora of pretty medusae and corals of extraordinary mollusks and crabs suddenly introduced us to a wealth of hidden organisms beyond all anticipation the peculiar beauty and diversity of which far transcend all the creations of the human imagination in the fifty large volumes of the account of the challenger expedition a vast number of these beautiful forms are delineated on three thousand plates and there are millions of other lovely organisms described in other great works that are included in the fast-growing literature of zoology and botany of the last ten years i began on a small scale to select a number of these beautiful forms for more popular description in my art forms in nature eighteen ninety nine however there is now no need for long voyages and costly works to appreciate the beauties of this world a man need only keep his eyes open and his mind disciplined surrounding nature offers us everywhere a marvellous wealth of lovely and interesting objects of all kinds in every bit of moss and blade of grass in every beetle and butterfly we find when we examine it carefully beauties which are usually overlooked above all when we examine them with a powerful glass or better still 
with a good microscope, we find everywhere in nature a new world of inexhaustible charms. But the nineteenth century has not only opened our eyes to the aesthetic enjoyment of the microscopic world, it has shown us the beauty of the greater objects in nature. Even at its commencement it was the fashion to regard the mountains as magnificent but forbidding, and the sea as sublime but dreaded. At its close the majority of educated people, especially they who dwell in the great cities, are delighted to enjoy the glories of the Alps and the crystal splendor of the glacier world for a fortnight every year, or to drink in the majesty of the ocean and the lovely scenery of its coasts. All these sources of the keenest enjoyment of nature have only recently been revealed to us in all their splendor, and the remarkable progress we have made in facility and rapidity of conveyance has given even the less wealthy an opportunity of approaching them. All this progress in the aesthetic enjoyment of nature, and, proportionately, in the scientific understanding of nature, implies an equal advance in higher mental development, and, consequently, in the direction of our monistic religion. The opposite character of our naturalistic century to that of the anthropistic centuries that preceded is especially noticeable in the different appreciation and spread of illustrations of the most diverse natural objects. In our own days, a lively interest in artistic work of that kind has been developed, which did not exist in earlier ages. It has been supported by the remarkable progress of commerce and technical art, which have facilitated a wide popularization of such illustrations. Countless illustrated periodicals convey along with their general information a sense of the inexhaustible beauty of nature in all its departments. In particular, landscape painting has acquired an importance that surpassed all imagination. In the first half of the century, one of our greatest and most erudite scientists, Alexander Humboldt, had pointed out that the development of modern landscape painting is not only of great importance as an incentive to the study of nature and as a means of geographical description, but that it is to be commended in other respects as a noble, educative medium since that time the taste for it has considerably increased it should be the aim of every school to teach the children to enjoy scenery at an early age and to give them the valuable art of imprinting on the memory by a drawing or water-color sketch the infinite wealth of nature in what is beautiful and sublime offers every man with open eyes and an aesthetic sense an incalculable sum of choicest gifts still however valuable and agreeable is the immediate enjoyment of each single gift its worth is doubled by a knowledge of its meaning and its connection with the rest of nature when humboldt gave us the outline of a physical description of the world in his magnificent cosmos forty years ago and when he combined scientific and aesthetic considerations so happily in his standard prospects of nature he justly indicated how closely the higher enjoyment of nature is connected with the scientific establishment of cosmic laws and that the conjunction of the two serves to raise human nature to a higher stage of perfection the astonishment with which we gaze upon the starry heavens and the microscopic life in a drop of water the awe with which we trace the marvellous working of energy in the motion of matter the reverence with which we grasp the universal dominance of the law of substance throughout the universe, all these are part of our emotional life, 
falling under the heading of natural religion this progress of modern times in knowledge of the true and enjoyment of the beautiful expresses on the one hand a valuable element of our monistic religion but is on the other hand in fatal opposition to christianity for the human mind is thus made to live on this side of the grave christianity would have it ever gaze beyond monism teaches that we are perishable children of the earth who for one or two or at the most three generations have the good fortune to enjoy the treasures of our planet to drink of the inexhaustible fountain of its beauty and to trace out the marvellous play of its forces christianity would teach us that the earth is a veil of tears in which we have but a brief period to chasten and torment ourselves in order to merit the life of eternal bliss beyond where this beyond is and of what joys the glory of this eternal life is compacted no revelation has ever told us as long as heaven was thought to be the blue vault that hovers over the disk of our planet and is illumined by the twinkling lights of a few thousand stars the human imagination could picture to itself the ambrosial banquets of the olympic gods above or the laden tables of the happy dwellers in valhalla but now all these deities and the immortal souls that sat at their tables are houseless and homeless as david strauss has so ably described for we know from astrophysical science that the immeasurable depths of space are filled with a prosaic ether and that millions of heavenly bodies ruled by eternal laws of iron rush hither and thither in the great ocean in their endless rhythm of life and death the places of devotion in which men seek the satisfaction of their religious emotions and worship the objects of their reverence are regarded as sacred churches the pagodas of buddhistic asia the greek temples of classical antiquity the synagogues of palestine the mosques of egypt the catholic cathedrals of the south and the protestant cathedrals of the north of europe all these houses of god serve to raise man above the misery and the prose of daily life to lift him into the sacred poetic atmosphere of a higher ideal world they attain this end in a thousand different ways according to their various forms of worship and their age the modern man who has science and art and therefore religion needs no special church no narrow enclosed portion of space for through the length and breadth of free nature wherever he turns his gaze to the whole universe or to any single part of it he finds indeed the grim struggle for life but by its side are ever the good the true and the beautiful his church is commensurate with the whole of glorious nature still there will always be men of special temperament who will desire to have decorated temples or churches as places of devotion to which they may withdraw just as the catholics had to relinquish a number of churches to the reformation in the sixteenth century so a still larger number will pass over to free societies of monists in the coming years end of chapter eighteen recording by nathan dickey ashland oregon journeymanheretic.blogspot.com